Welcome to the Two Journeys Bible Study Podcast. This podcast is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode 21 in our Acts Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled, Peter Defends His Actions, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses that we're looking at today? Yeah, what we're going to see today, amazingly, is a very careful rehashing or a restatement of what we already saw in, in Acts 10. And it's really remarkable that the Holy Spirit wanted the double account. And mm-hmm. we also get this with Paul's conversion as well, the triple account in that case. So some things that are important get repeated. Uh, in this case, though, it's in the context of a, a very hostile, close questioning by some people who are very uh, initially upset with what Peter has done. And as a result, we're going to see some emerging principles that are going to going to uh, be established uh, in Acts 15 concerning how Gentile converts will be welcomed into uh, the church of Jesus Christ. So it's a pretty exciting moment in redemptive history. Well, let me go ahead and read verses 1 through 18 in Acts chapter 11. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord. For nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me. And we entered the man's house, and he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. What issue comes up right from the beginning of this section in verses 1 through 3, Andy? Right. One of the main themes, I think, in the book of Acts is the movement of the church of Jesus Christ from Jew only to Jew plus Gentile to eventually predominantly Gentile. And so this is obviously a very significant moment, Acts 10, when Peter goes to the house of Cornelius and leads them to Christ, Cornelius being a Roman centurion, and he and all his family were Gentiles. And so this is a very, very significant moment. And as a result, there's going to be some backlash among the Jewish Christians. Um, They had not fully understood yet 
what Paul would later write in Ephesians 2, that the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile has been completely removed Mm. through faith in Christ. The ceremonial laws are fulfilled and they're obsolete. The author of, of Hebrews calls them obsolete. And so the time for that is over. I think Stephen might have uh, recognized that to some degree, uh, but the fully developed thinking uh, has to come, and it hasn't come yet. And so the apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard about this, and some people called the circumcision group, and we're going to see them more and more as as time unfolds, but uh, they raised objections and they criticized Peter. Now, what's going on with these people? Well, the best uh, articulation comes from their own mouth in Acts 15. And um, you see what they're saying in Acts 15 uh, as, as Gentile Christians are told, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Wow. Um, and then uh, in verse 5, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses, and I'll add the words they didn't say this time, but they did earlier, in order to be saved. Hmm. And this is what Paul calls in Galatians a gospel that is no gospel at all. Um, And Peter himself there in Acts 15 is going to say, it's a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear. And so these are legalistic uh, people that have a legalistic uh, sense of the gospel. Now, we need to say, I don't know that they're exactly the same people, because by the end of this little account, they're satisfied. And so it could be they're just normal Jewish Christians who haven't been developed in their thinking yet. So I think it's encouraging that by verse 18, they're acceding to the work of God and yielding to Peter's logic saying, who was I to think I could oppose God? So in other words, who are you to think you could oppose God Mm -hmm. either? They all get on the same page. But that's what's going on. There's some pushback here from Jewish Christians saying, where are we going to fit into the whole whole division between Jew and Gentile through circumcision, dietary regulations, a whole lifestyle, a whole different culture? How is that going to be? This is a very significant chapter for that. Verse 3 seems to speak to the Jew-Gentile relationship, even in the way it's articulated. What does the attitude of the Jewish believers teach us about the nature of that relationship? Well, again, I think I mentioned this last time. I don't find anywhere in the uh, the entire Old Testament any regulations against Jews eating food with Gentiles. There are clear regulations against intermarriage. And of course, when Joshua goes in, he goes in with the sword to to clear out the seven nations that were making up or were populating the promised land. Wipe them out. Don't spare them. So that's different, though. That's It's pretty clear that once they're settled in and, and they start living their lives and developing their economy and trading and doing different things, they're going to have interactions with Gentiles in their countries, hmm. in distant countries or uh, in, in different ways, and they're going to be able to eat with them. I'm sure that the Queen of the South, when she came um, to visit uh, Solomon, they had a meal together. They ate together. So this is going beyond. But this is what legalists tend to do. They add extra regulations that are nowhere taught. So they're slamming on Peter for a tradition, not a law, but a tradition saying Jews should never eat with Gentiles or go into their houses lest they be defiled. Why is the issue of circumcision so vital in this account? You mentioned that it's not going to be resolved here because obviously we'll we'll hear more of circumcision later, but why is it so vital in this account? Well, it's very clear from Galatians chapter 3 where he says to them, did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? You got the spirit by believing. You didn't do anything. Hmm. 
There are no works. And so circumcision then becomes a symbol. It's a, it's obviously a, a surgical procedure, but it's related to, to the law. It's a gateway into a whole life of legal uh, obedience to the laws of Moses, you know, submission to the laws of Moses. And so circumcision becomes a symbol of that entire lifestyle, a lifestyle dominated by law. That includes Sabbath regulations, that includes dietary regulations, includes all, all of those things. And uh, so fundamentally, uh, by them criticizing, uh, they're saying they have to obey the law in order to be saved. But the simple fact of the case is the Holy Spirit disagrees. <laughs> when did the Spirit come as they're listening to a message? They didn't even move a muscle. They're like the thief on the cross. They didn't do anything. They're just standing there listening, and the Holy Spirit comes. So that shows us also justification by faith. Faith doesn't move a muscle. There's no need to come mm. forward or to sit on the anxious bench or to sign the card, the decision card, or frankly, even to pray the sinner's prayer. Faith is an internal heart disposition, something that happens inside you. Now, it definitely results in all kinds of good works, as mm -hmm. James makes mm -hmm. plain. But the fact of the case is the Holy Spirit came while they as yet had done nothing, and they were not circumcised. So that brings us right to Galatians 3 and says, I want to ask you a question. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the works of the law or by believing what you heard? And so that's that, that clear case here. Cornelius and his family received the Spirit by simple faith in the message. Mm -hmm. In verse 4, Peter begins a detailed retelling of exactly what took place. It says Peter began and explained it to them in order. So he's going to give a, a detailed account of what happened. Why do you think Luke gives such a detailed retelling through the mouth of Peter of something really we just discussed and we just looked at recently? Yeah, I think working this through for myself, first of all, it's not exactly the same. There's some additional things. Like verse 14 gives us some additional statement made by the angel saying he will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. That's something that's not written in Acts 10. So that's some additional information. And so the Holy Spirit reserves the right on second telling to give us some more information, just like in Acts 26, when we find out the Lord also said it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Well, he didn't mention that in Acts 9, and he didn't mention that in Acts 22. So, you know... <laughs> They're not identical. And it's the same thing with the synoptics. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they go over the same ground, but slightly differently. So you always learn some new things. But the simple answer to your question is the reason that the Holy Spirit repeats it is for emphasis. This is a very important moment. Mm. And so we're going to circle back and we're going to say the same thing now. And we're going to say it essentially twice. So it shows how important this is. Yeah, he also mentions in this the brothers that went along with him mm -hmm. when he had received the vision and then was going to Cornelius's house. What role do you think the brothers who went with Peter played in this controversy? And is there a good ministry principle that we can learn from this? Yeah, I mean, in verse 12, it says that six brothers went along with him. And I think it's pretty clear that these are to be eyewitnesses. Uh, you know, in the church discipline case that Jesus mentions in Matthew 18, if he doesn't listen to you, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Well, this gets doubled. You've got six additional witnesses beyond Peter, and they all testified. You know, and again, they're standing right there. So these six brothers, these ones, do you have any questions, ask them. And they're all mm -hmm. nodding, saying that's what happened. And so it isn't just Peter's word. And I think in this way, the Lord in his wisdom is protecting Peter so that, you know, he's got some people standing with him saying, yeah, that's exactly how it happened. So I think they're eyewitnesses to the very significant event of the Holy Spirit 
being poured out on the uncircumcised Gentiles as they heard a message. Andy, we were talking even just a moment ago about how important it is to do ministry with others, to have others involved in the things that we do. Obviously, this is a unique moment in redemptive history, but do you think there's something that can be gained there in thinking about how we do ministry, to have others alongside us in advancing the gospel and doing various types of work for the Lord? First of all, it's just part of our friendship. We get to share things together. You think about brothers in arms and that men go through battles uh, together, and they are lifelong friends. There's a bond of loyalty that is so sweet and rich and powerful. But sticking specifically to this account and what's happening here, um, they were eyewitnesses of a very possibly controversial event that the Holy Spirit himself hmm. solved by his actions, but still it needs to be interpreted. And beyond beyond that, if you look at verse 12, the six brothers uh, joined Peter inside the house. They crossed the threshold. So I think at that point, you think, well, why did they do that? They were trusting Peter. So we see the influence of, of, a, of a godly leader. He's, he's venturing forth and they're following his leadership. And so this is a very, very significant thing, his leadership. By the way, that's the the very problem that Paul addresses when Peter at some point shrunk back from table fellowship with the Gentiles. He changed his mind. Hmm. And he needed to get read the riot act by Paul because he's a leader. People are going to follow his example. And so these six brothers followed me and we together went into this man's house. So verse 14, you mentioned, has this addition of the salvation of Cornelius and all his household. But there's more to verse 14 as well. What does verse 14 teach us about Cornelius's spiritual status before hearing the gospel? Mm -hmm. And how does it show the gospel to be the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes? Absolutely. And I'm going to ask a third issue too. What does it show about angelic involvement in preaching the gospel? <laughs> so all kinds of things can come from this. But the angel comes to Cornelius and says this message. And we get this additional information that we didn't have in Acts 10. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. Um, and basically, uh, what we learn here is that at that point, Cornelius was not saved. He was not justified. So he still needed to hear the message and believe. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on one of whom they have not believed? And how can they believe in someone of whom they've never heard? And how can they preach unless uh, someone is sent to them? Um, or how can they hear unless someone preaches it to, the, to them? And how can they preach unless they're sent, as Roman 10 said, says? So Peter and the six are the fulfillment of that. They are the messengers. Hmm. So the angel could preach the gospel right there and then, but he doesn't. And he's going to use human agency. We also learn something here that uh, is very important for me as a Baptist. Often, pedo Baptists or those that believe in infant baptism cite household baptisms as evidence of infant baptism. But there is no clear example of any infants ever being involved in that. Instead, we usually get, as we're going to later get in Acts 16 with the Philippian jailer and his family, and Cornelius and his family, it's through the message, hearing and believing the message mm -hmm. that individuals are saved and then baptized. So this actually uh, upholds the Baptist pattern of proclamation, repentance and faith, and then water baptism. What role does the coming of the Holy Spirit on these uncircumcised people play in this account? We've alluded to it. We've talked sure. about uh, how the Holy Spirit did come on them, but what role does that play in this account? 
Well, again and again in the book of Acts, the coming of the Holy Spirit with tongues and prophecy and other outward visible manifestations is a marker that God Almighty puts. He, he's like putting a flag in in a person, really, saying this person is is acceptable. This person is uh, forgiven. This person is um, is a believer. They that that they have repented unto life. They are born again. They're justified. Because again, you can't see it. Uh, the person's person's hair color doesn't change. They don't get like six inches taller. I mean, they they just believe in something inside the heart. But at this early stage of church history. The Lord wanted to do this showy demonstration through the baptism of the Spirit, through this, through the speaking of tongues and other manifestations, to say these people have become Christians. Hmm. And as we said a moment ago, the significance is they did it not having moved a muscle. They did it without any works of the law at all, just by simply hearing and believing. So that underscores the doctrine of justification by faith alone apart from works of the law. This is going to be very important for the future history of the church. Why does Peter relate what happened to Cornelius and the Gentiles back to Jesus' statement about the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And how does this compare to the reminding ministry of the Holy Spirit that Jesus speaks about in John 14, 26? Right. Well, this brings us back to the very beginning of Acts chapter 1, where he said, um, John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So that's that uh, the day of Pentecost. And so, uh, you know, harkens back to the beginning of water baptism. Uh, which John the Baptist started, which we have no indications of at all in the Old Testament. It's a New Testament thing that John did to prepare the hearts of the Jewish nation for the coming of the Messiah. And then Jesus picked it up and continued water baptism, and it's become a staple and a, and a part of the Great Commission, baptizing them in water. And so um, Peter remembered um, the real baptism. Baptizo means to immerse. The real immersion that happens is by the Holy Spirit. It's a supernatural working that only God can do. And when he immerses someone in the Holy Spirit, uh, they are saved. He doesn't immerse anyone in the Holy Spirit who has not been justified. Mm. So the sequence, I believe, is hearing the gospel, repentance and faith, um, and then the baptism of the Spirit, which is an internal thing that doesn't always show itself now, but back then it did by speaking in tongues and other manifestations. And so the idea then is by simple hearing with faith, uh, they are born again. What conclusion does Peter draw from the evident baptism of the Holy Spirit at that time? Well, God had given them the same gift. The, you know, and Paul's going to write this in 1 Corinthians 12, 24. By one spirit, we were baptized into one body. All right, there's just one body of Christ, the, mm. the church, the bride of Christ. There's not multiple works going on. In some sense, in their different localities, but there's a mystical union that we have with all truly born-again believers in which we are part of the one body of Christ. And it is by the Spirit that we are baptized into that one body, uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12. And so Peter sees that. He says, look, these folks have been baptized by that one Spirit into the church into the body of Christ. And so there's nothing, there's no objection. Hmm. Then I think he puts the whole thing together with the uh, the vision, the threefold vision of the unclean animals, which ties into the whole, the whole dietary regulations and the whole sacramental system and the whole um, mosaic uh, regulations that set Jews and Gentiles apart. It was the, the essence of the dividing wall of hostility with these laws and regulations. That's removed. Mm -hmm. It's gone. 
And he says, get up, Peter, kill and eat. He said, I've never eaten anything impure and clean. He says, don't call anything impure that what? God has made clean. So he must conclude at this point, Cornelius and his family have been made clean through their faith in Christ. They've been cleansed from their sins. They're not filthy Gentile dogs. Hmm. They have been cleansed and they have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. So God gave them the same gift as us. Who was I to think that I could oppose God, to stand against what God is doing? And so that also is a strong message to these people who are questioning Peter. Yeah, it was a powerful statement that he makes there. And really, you know, it reminds us, I think, of Stephen's accusation uh, that there's this constant struggle uh, with uh, Peter and the Jewish people against what God is doing. And Peter recognizes here, I, I can't stand in the way of this work that God is doing. I can't be stiff-necked. I can't, I can't push back or oppose the plan and purpose of God. Yeah, yeah. I want to say one other thing about that. Who is I to think that I could oppose God? And I love what you just said, Wes. It's so true. God is driving the bus. God is mm. advancing the kingdom. He is, he's driving the freight train or whatever analogy. He yeah. is leading this thing. And it's going to go where he wants it to go. God is not passively waiting for us to get an idea of what to do. and Not at all. He knows exactly what he's doing. And so we need to understand that. God is the one in charge, and we need to just let him be God and follow his leadership. You know, with that being the case, that God is the one driving all of this, why are we so frequently out of step with what God is doing in the world? We're so messed up and foolish. And isn't it amazing that God uses people like us? Because even Peter's going to have his later confusion, as I mentioned, about Gentile involvement in the church. Mm. He's going to double back. John the Baptist had questions about Jesus, mm-hmm. which, you know, is it's just tragic, but that's the weakness. And I think in the end, it shows the great power of God and the kindness of God that he can use weak, frail sinners like us to achieve great things. Mm. What effect does this news that Peter has been relating about the coming of the Spirit have on the accusations of the circumcised believers? Well, I think it's really important. I mean, verse 18, it says, when they heard this, they had no further objection. So they're satisfied. Their their questioning is done. And then they praise God. Hmm. They're not reluctant here. That's why I don't think they're really part of the circumcision group that's going to come in later. Some of those people, you get the feeling that they're not even Christians. I think Mm. they, they actually aren't. You know, in Galatians, Paul's not saying, hey, this is okay for you to believe this, but here's a better way. He's saying, no, no, that's no gospel at all. And so I don't think these people are in that group. These people are persuadable, which is a very humble thing. You come come at a situation with a strong conviction, but you listen. You listen to some argumentation, and then you change your mind. And you think, well, the way I was thinking before was wrong. This is a better way. Hmm. They have no further objections. And they praise God. They're happy. Why shouldn't they praise God? In this way, they're so much better than Jonah. He didn't praise God for the repentance of the Ninevites. He should have. God did a great work. God sent him as a messenger, and he was effective, and he was pretty angry about it. Oh my well, in this case, they're not angry. They're praising God. Hmm. And they're saying, well, this is a big thing now. God has granted, even to the Gentiles, repentance unto life. So I think that that's, that's a, a beautiful uh, humility on their part, a willingness to follow God's lead. So yeah, initially we may get things wrong, but in the end, God with his true sheep, they're going to come around to seeing things his way. 
heard someone articulate recently, argue like you're right, listen like you're wrong. So it seems in this case, at least, that they were listening with a willingness to hear. Uh, And then they make that powerful statement to the Gentiles also then. God has granted repentance that leads to life. What's the theological significance of that statement? And what final thoughts do you have for us on this passage? Well, the theological uh, significance is the uh, use of the word grant and that God is the one granting. And what is being granted? Repentance unto life. So here's the thing. God is sovereign in salvation, and repentance is essential to salvation. If God doesn't grant you repentance, you will not repent. Mm. And so also 2 Timothy 2 teaches the same thing. In order that God may grant them repentance um, in reference to being held captive by Satan to do his will. And so it's the same concept. God grants repentance, so turn it around. If you have repented and trusted in Christ, it was God that granted that to you. Mm. He gave you the gift. And so this is a fantastic sense. And therefore, we go to God with prayer saying, God, here's this this, this unrepentant, stubborn, hard-hearted sinner. Would you please work repentance in them, grant them repentance and something that God alone can do. Final words here is this is a significant moment in redemptive history as the church is getting used to the idea of Gentile Christians. They're starting to grapple with the theology and God is leading out and using Peter as he will use Paul and other leaders to show them the truth of the gospel. And now what we have is people from almost every tribe and language and people and nation believing in Christ, trusting in him for the forgiveness of their sins. What a vast display of God's glory that's gonna be in heaven. This has been episode 21 in our Acts Bible Study podcast. We want to invite you to join us next time for episode 22 entitled The First Gentile Church, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.